Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence. We come in the name and through the merits of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We thank you for the communion that we have with the Father and with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the help and ministry of the Holy Spirit that draws our affections after you. We ask for your blessing. We, we remember this evening as we, as we look at the mystery of election and reprobation, your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts. And give us a servant-like hearts and minds to yield in submission to all that you have revealed concerning yourself and your ways. Now hear us and grant us your blessing. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now uh, we come tonight to consider together election and uh, reprobation as we uh, make this uh, journey uh, through the principal doctrines uh, that scripture reveals and uh, last week was a little, well, dense. It was a little difficult. And uh, we were uh, talking last week about a more general concept, uh, the concept of the decree of God or the decisions of God or perhaps the plan uh, of God. And uh, we were trying to think of that, glimpsing, as it were, into eternity uh, and glimpsing into the mind of God and glimpsing as much as we can and are able and are allowed to do into uh, the way in which God makes a certain decision, a decision about creation, a decision about permitting the fall, a decision about election and reprobation, a decision about sending uh, the Lord Jesus as the mediator of the sins of the elect. Now, I want to uh, descend a little from that high and lofty plane, although we'll come back up to it at some point in this evening's lecture, um, but I want to think now more particularly as a subcategory, if you like, of the doctrine of God's decree, namely the doctrine, first of all, of election, and then its counterpart, uh, perhaps an even more difficult uh, notion from a pastoral point of view, that, that is the doctrine of reprobation. And confining myself now just to the New Testament, uh, that's not to say that this doctrine isn't taught in the Old Testament, it certainly is, um, but I'm confining myself here to the New Testament and to uh, two or three uh, particular words, uh, all of which have in mind God choosing uh, a divine, sovereign, uh, monogistic uh, act of God uh, in choosing. 
Um, we begin uh, with a, perhaps a really, really well-known text, uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29. Uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, that's one word, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So there's a foreknowledge on the part of God, and then there is a predestinating on the part of God. Now, foreknowledge, uh, we tend to think of the word foreknowledge as God looking into the future and seeing what is going to happen in the future. Does God have that kind of foreknowledge? Well, of course he does. He knows everything. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen next week. He knows what's going to happen next year. And he knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. So God certainly does have that kind of foreknowledge. But the question that then is asked is this one. Is God's choosing of some to salvation based on foresight as to how a person might or might not respond to the preaching of the gospel. And foreknowledge here does not mean that. Foreknowledge here is a word that's taken from the Old Testament to set one's love upon, um, to show affection for in a particular way. God foreknows. Um, you'll be familiar, of course, with Genesis and uh, how Moses uh, describes uh, Adam and Eve uh, in their uh, marital uh, relationship together, that, that um, Adam knew his wife. It's, it's that kind of love, that kind of affection. Uh, and uh, the word foreknow me means here that God sets his love upon an individual beforehand, uh, foreknowledge. So you have foreknowledge and predestination. Uh, and then uh, in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, in love, he predestined. Uh, there's that word again. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Or Peter writing to uh, the, the scattered uh, uh, church, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, uh, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and so on, according to the foreknowledge, uh, same word as in Romans 8:28, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, God foreknew these. Uh, he had set his love upon them beforehand. They are the elect exiles. Now that's, uh, that's the data. Uh, that's uh, just a part of the data, of course, but this isn't uh, the doctrine of election or the doctrine of uh, wider doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of God's foreknowledge. is not something uh, that uh, Calvinists in the 16th century sort of invented uh, in order to make some uh, theological capital. Uh, this is a this is something that emerges from the data of Scripture. Scripture talks about something called election, something called foreknowledge. Now, election uh, is individual and personal. The kind of thing 
that Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 and 1 Peter chapter 1 is talking about is an election of foreknowledge that is, that is both individual and personal. Now this is how uh, the Westminster Confession uh, summarizes it in chapter 3 of the Confession. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith. Now, you understand what it's saying. It's not saying that God cannot foresee of an individual exercising faith. God foresees everything. He can, he can see that. But the basis of his election, the basis of his choosing, is not the fact that he can foresee someone exercising faith. The reason someone exercises faith is because they have been foreknown. It is because they are elect. They're not elect because they believe. They believe because they are elect. Now, that's uh, the statement uh, as uh, Westminster in the 17th century uh, summarized the doctrine of personal election. Now, that's not to say that um, the Bible doesn't teach, for example, a more broader, uh, a broader concept of election to service, uh, election to a certain task, uh, election to a certain call. Uh, Israel, for example, was the servant of God. Uh, they were, Israel as a nation, were witnesses uh, for God in the world. God had chosen them to be a witness to the world in a, in a collective way, uh, as a nation. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, calling of Saul of uh, Tarsus. Uh, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry, is speaking now about Saul of Tarsus, he's a chosen instrument of mine. Saul, uh, who becomes Paul, was a chosen elect, if you like, instrument of God. Uh, he had a specific task, an individual task, a personal task to carry out for the Lord. Now, there are those uh, who insist that that's all that election means. Uh, election means that you have a special uh, a, a special place in the kingdom, a special task to do, uh, that God elects you to be a deacon, that God elects you to be an elder, God elects you to be a missionary, God elects you to be a, a housewife, a mother, uh, God elects you to a particular set of privileges, uh, to, be his wit to be his chosen witnesses in the world. Now there are those who insist that that's all that the Bible teaches about election, and I've given you uh, a quotation uh, in, at the bottom of page 2 and the top of page 3. Uh, I won't read it uh, now, but uh, I've given you a couple of quotations uh, from uh, Ben uh, uh, William uh, Klein and from uh, Ben uh, Witherington. Uh, these are very familiar uh, names in, uh, in biblical scholarship world 
uh, today. But both of these individuals are, are saying and insisting there's no such thing as personal election. There's just election to service, election to privilege, uh, election to a certain uh, task that God appoints. I, I'm not denying that the Bible teaches that. Uh, but, I, but, I, but I'm also saying that the Bible teaches a personal and an individual election to salvation. There's a, there's a deeper sense uh, in the New Testament uh, with regard to election. Uh, look at uh, Jacob and Esau, for example, Romans 9, uh, 13 and 15. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Uh, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a difficult text. It's a very somber text. It raises a number of questions. Uh, Questions about fairness. Uh, How how is it fair for twins? Uh, These are twins. Uh, Identical in in every way. Uh, they, They have the same privileges. Uh, they have the same upbringing, they're, they're in the same uh, status uh, within, within the covenant uh, as covenant children. And yet one is elect and one is not. One is chosen and the other is not. Uh, there is a, a sovereignty about it. So there's, there's no, there's no uh, explanation here that, uh, that Jacob is chosen to privilege or Jacob is chosen to status. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, the contrast here is stark. One he loves and the other he hates. Now, uh, we'll pass over for a minute, if I may, what does it mean for God to hate someone? That, that raises a uh, set of issues all by itself. But, but I, I simply want us to see the contrast and the very stark contrast that's being established here with God's dealings with one of the twins and the other of the twins. It's very personal. This is more than status, it's more than privilege, this is about, this is about the doctrine of salvation. Or think of Jesus' words uh, in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Uh, there is a donation on the part of the Father to the Son. Uh, there is a donation uh, in, in the councils of eternity, uh, before the beginning Uh, of the world. The Father donates uh, a certain number of individuals to the Son. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Uh, There's a connection between between election and those who are saved. All who are elect will be saved, and no more are saved than those whom the Father gives to him. Uh, There is a synonymity. There is a, there is a, a, a uh, uh, almost a mathematic uh, element to what uh, Jesus is saying uh, there. It underscores, of course, the, the way in which we can be assured that, that the elect cannot fall from grace. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. Uh, similarly, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Uh, this is his prayer. This, these are his, his uh, final uh, aspirations on the eve of his uh, crucifixion. But he is uh, self-conscious here of the Father having given, the Father having donated to him uh, in the councils of eternity. Now, election is not only personal, but it's also unconditional. 
This is, of course, part of a wider um, doctrine in Scripture about the nature of salvation in general. That salvation is by grace and not by works. That it's not the result of merit. It's not the result of reward. It's not God looking at the things that we do and rewarding us for obedience. Election is entirely of grace. Uh, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now, if, as uh, some uh, believe, that the basis upon which election works is that God elects those whom he foresees as exercising faith, in other words, that faith becomes a work. If If we have autonomous, free will to choose Jesus Christ all by ourselves. That, that choosing is a meritorious thing. It becomes a work. And therefore that's why the confessions of the 17th century want to outlaw every aspect of self-righteousness, of self-reward, even and including faith on our part. That the faith that we exercise, and we exercise that faith, but that faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, as uh, Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2. Uh, It's no more uh, clearer, I think, than in the case of Jacob and Esau, again in Romans 9, though they were not yet born. Now, now that's, that's, that's taking it all the way back into the womb. Before they had done anything, anything at all, before they had exercised their, their will, before they, had, before they had first uttered a word, before they had done anything. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. Uh, emphasizing then not only the personal nature of election, uh, but also the fact that election is unconditional. It's not on the basis of foreseen faith uh, on our part or uh, some foreseen uh, quality or attribute that we may or may not um, possess. Now, if you want to see the opposite of that, and uh, that to which the Westminster Confession statement on election is aimed at uh, to some degree, uh, I've included on the top of page four one of the articles of the so-called remonstrance, um, Arminianism uh, would be the colloquial term for it. Uh, This is article number one uh, of the five uh, remonstrant articles to which the five points of Calvinism were counter-articles, you understand, the first of which uh, was total depravity and the second of which was unconditional election. Uh, and, and the unconditional election statement of the canons of Dort in 1619 were issued in opposition to this particular article in 1610 that God, by an eternal and unchangeable purpose in Jesus Christ, his Son, before the foundation of the world, has determined that out of the fallen sinful race of men to save in Christ, for Christ's sake, and through Christ, those who through the grace of the Holy Spirit shall believe on this, his Son, Jesus, and shall persevere in this faith and obedience of faith 
through this grace even to the end. Now, uh, the, the, uh, the fact is that although, uh, although there is a mention here of the grace of the Holy Spirit, uh, there was, uh, underlying this article of the Remonstrance, um, the, the, the idea that the reason God chooses is because he can foresee individuals choosing Jesus. And on that basis, he elects them. So you can see into the future those who respond, and that's what election means. And it was counter uh, to that uh, that uh, the uh, canons of Dort in 1619 and uh, the Westminster Confession in 1645 uh, responded uh, with a statement of unconditional um, election. Because, as I, as I summarize it under D, because such a view makes faith a work, a meritorious work, something that Scripture will not allow. Election is also, not only is it unconditional, not only is it personal, but election is also in order to holiness. Election is in order to holiness. Now, we have to stress this because opponents of election uh, will caricature the doctrine of election by saying that if, if, if God chooses beforehand those who will be saved and not one of those whom God chooses can be lost, then we can live as we please. Once we are saved, we can live as we please. Now, the, the response to that, of course, uh, would be, how do you know that you are actually one of the elect? And the answer of Scripture is always through perseverance and not apart from it. So Peter says quite categorically at the beginning of his epistle, he's writing to these uh, scattered uh, folk in, uh, in what we would now call uh, Turkey. Uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit, he, he talks about the elect exiles, to those who are the elect exiles, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Elect to obedience. Elect to obedience. Elect to obedience. Peter won't allow you to draw any kind of antinomian inference from the doctrine of election. He won't allow you to say, because the Bible teaches election, therefore I can live as I please. Or in Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. What is it that the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of his people? Conforming us to the image of Jesus. What is our goal every day, every hour, every minute? To be conformed to the image of God's Son. So election then does not encourage ungodliness or antinomianism or lawlessness, if you like. Ungodliness or, or lawlessness. Uh, not at least in the mind of Paul and not in the mind of Peter. Uh, in the minds of the apostles, uh, the doctrine of unconditional election is in harmony with the idea that we are to be holy, we are to be sanctified. Now, a very important uh, element of the doctrine of election is uh, the, the next uh, part of uh, our study, that is uh, election in Christ. Uh, 
I'm translating Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 in this way. Uh, some of your translations will have in love and then a period and then a capital H, he predestined. Uh, but I, I think it's better translated this way. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The predestinating act of God, election, is in Christ. It is through Jesus Christ. Uh, the Westminster Confession uh, picks that up, uh, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory. We, can, we cannot talk, we dare not talk, we, we must not talk about election apart from Christ, apart from Jesus, apart from who he is and apart from what he has done. We, we mustn't think of it as some kind of abstract philosophical axiom. Something that's uh, kind of floating in the air uh, above the Bible. Uh, the doctrine of election is a, is, a, is a doctrine that works itself out in space and time through Jesus Christ. And that's very important. Now let's elaborate on that uh, idea for a minute. Um, first of all, who is the one who elects? God is. This is the election of God. God elects. Who is God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God and three persons. Christ is the electing God. Who is it who elects? It is Jesus who elects because he is God. You can't talk about election apart from Jesus. You can't talk about election as something, something that the Father does and, and, and salvation as something that Jesus does and, and pits the Father against the Son in some way. Predestination, election, and its counterpart, reprobation, is in that sense Trinitarian. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. There's also another sense in which uh, election is in Christ because Christ himself is the elect one. Uh, scripture speaks of him as the elect one. Uh, I've picked up a verse from Luke 23. It actually comes from his enemies. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The Christ, the Messiah, is in one sense God's chosen one. There's a sense in which Jesus himself is the chosen one. Now, uh, there's a, a phrase that occurs here. It occurs in Calvin. It, 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 it can sometimes prove to be helpful. Uh, Calvin, uh, in the Institute, speaks of uh, Christ as the mirror uh, of our election. Uh, he is the, the mirror uh, of election. Uh, there are two ways of understanding that. Uh, there, there, it's, it's often uh, thought that what uh, Calvin is saying is that when, you know, when, we, when we look into the mirror, what do we see? We don't see ourselves, we see Jesus. We are in Christ. We are trusting in Jesus. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So you look into the mirror. You know, how do you know whether you're elect? I, I can't know whether I'm elect. By, by hacking into the hard drive of heaven and, uh, and looking into the book of life and, and checking under the alphabet for Thomas and, and then Derek, William, Henry and then a, perhaps a birth date uh, or, or of some kind. I can't do that. So how can I know that I'm elect? 
And the answer of Scripture is always the one who is elect is the one who believes on Jesus Christ. You, you, you go to Jesus. You believe in him. You trust in him. You look into the mirror. What do you see? You, see? you don't see yourself. You see yourself in Christ. He is the mirror of our election. Now that preaches well. I doubt that's what Calvin meant, by the way, in that section of the Institutes. But that's how it's often uh, interpreted. Um, uh, let me get this uh, nuance here clear in our minds. We are in Christ, right? as believers, we are in Christ. We are in union with Christ. We are in fellowship with Christ. We sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We, all of us who are, who are believers, we have two zip codes. We, we are here in 29201. This is one. 29201, I think. But we're also in heaven. We're in the heavenly places. We're in Christ. We're in union and we're in fellowship with him. Now, we are in him because we are elect. It's not the other way around. We're not elect because we are in him. We are in him because we are elect. Uh, Election is, is the sovereign element in this consideration. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Now, there are some objections to the doctrine of uh, election, and I want, to, um, I want to consider some of them. Uh, there are more objections than we have time for this evening, for sure. Um, but let's, uh, let's, um, let's think about a few of the objections to election. Uh, one objection that's raised against election is uh, that it goes against God's universal intention to save all. Uh, Let me put it that way. Now, the question is, is it God's universal intention to save all? Does God actually intend to save everybody? Uh, People will quote uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. God loved the world, so God loves everybody. God loves uh, uh, every single individual in exactly the same way that ever was and is and shall be in every part of the world. Is, is that what John 3.16 is actually saying? Uh, because if that is the case, then God's love is not fulfilled. There is an intention in God that is frustrated in some way. Uh, and um, uh, there, there are, there are more that, there's more than one way of thinking about John 3.16, uh, for God so loved the world. Um, It is perfectly consonant, I think, uh, with uh, other statements in the New Testament that when John says, um, God so loved the world, and it may be be John who is saying it rather than Jesus, but if you have a red-letter Bible, I think you are going to say it's Jesus who said it, but that may not actually be the case. This may be a statement of John rather than an actual statement of Jesus with, with quotation marks. Um, for God so loved the world, he loved, he loved, you know, I, I have been to the other, I have been to the other side of the world. Uh, I went to New Zealand, I went to the other side of the world. I have been, I have been around the world. I could say that, I've been around the world. But I, I haven't been in every country. You know, I think I've been in, I, I, I counted it the other day, and, and I think I've been in about 30 to 35 different countries in the world. 
Um, but I haven't been in, in, in many, 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 many countries in the world. But, but I, can use the, I can use the term, I've been, I've been all over the world. I've been around the world, but I haven't been in every country in the world. And there's, so there's more than one way of, of understanding uh, God so loved the world. He loved all kinds of people, perhaps. Or he loved this kind of world rather than an ideal world. He loved, he loved this fallen world in a moral sense. God's love is manifested in a fallen, ruined World and not and not just a, an ideal world like God's God loved Eden, but He doesn't love this world. There there are, there are many different ways of interpreting John three sixteen without without interpreting it as God loving every single individual in exactly the same way with exactly the same intent. Uh, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And again, uh, uh, what does what all people? Is it, is it all people meaning every single individual in exactly the same way? Or, or is it all kinds of people? People from every ethnicity and every social group, perhaps. Uh, and, and, and that could be what, uh, what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2.4. A uh, second objection is that the doctrine is inconsistent with human responsibility. Now, it's interesting that, uh, you know, while we have that objection, we have a philosophical objection that it's either God does something or we do something, but it cannot be both. And yet Paul can say in the same breath, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know, Paul was a, was a smart, intelligent person. Uh, actually, he was incredibly smart and had, a, had, a, had one of the best educations that the then world uh, could possibly have offered. And yet he's using, he's using sovereignty and responsibility here in the same breath. Uh, without, without raising the obvious philosophical um, uh, elephant in the room uh, by putting sovereignty and responsibility in the same uh, sentence. Now, there's, uh, there are several ways uh, of addressing this. Uh, I mention here under C, for example, uh, some passages. Uh, the Genesis 50 passage is uh, uh, Joseph and his brothers. Uh, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's the same act. There's, a, there's an act uh, of his brothers. They are morally responsible for what they do. Uh, and yet... And yet, it, it is all part of the fulfilling of a greater purpose of Almighty God. And I think, uh, I think that we need to be careful how we think of uh, causes. Uh, uh, we, we shouldn't caricature um, election and predestination or, for that matter, Calvinism uh, or, we, or the Westminster Confession or, or, or Presbyterian doctrine, whatever you want to call it, uh, we, we shouldn't caricature it as um, a doctrine of omnicausality. 
Right? That's, your, that's your big word for tonight. Omnicausality. Uh, God causes things at different levels. God's control is at different levels. Uh, the Westminster Confession adopts a, a standard way of understanding this that actually has medieval roots. Uh, Thomas Aquinas had, had exactly the same uh, idea. Uh, he talks about first and second causes. Right? So it, it, the, the, the way God's sovereignty operates is at various levels. Uh, and God, you remember, we, we must remember, God is outside of space and time. We can only think of causality in terms of of certain chronology. We can only think of it in spatial and temporal uh, terms. And God is outside of all of that. So there's a way in which we, we cannot think in the way God thinks. God thinks in a way that's entirely different from the way we think. He is omniscient and, and, and he is aware of all the facts at, at and, I, and I'm going to say, at any one time, because that's the only way I can say it. But God is outside of time. Uh, and therefore there is, a, there is a, an understanding of the way that God is totally sovereign. And yet we are responsible moral agents. We're not automatons. We're not robots. Uh, in, a, in a way, I think, that, that, uh, that is brought about by a consideration uh, of God is other than us. God, God is outside of time and space. Um, there is a compatibilism between, between God's sovereignty and human uh, responsibility. Now, however you want to try and uh, square the circle, right, from a human point of view, the New Testament and Old Testament writers showed no desire to do so. Work out your own salvation, right, that you are morally responsible, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You can't just sit back as, as though you were robots and wait for God to do it. Work out your own salvation. But it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's move on. Uh, time is going. Let's move on to reprobation, uh, the, the other side, if you like. Let's pick up a statement from uh, our own standards. Uh, Chapter 3, verse uh, section 7. Uh, the rest of mankind, uh, th- that is those whom God did not elect to salvation, the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and Wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Now those are very solemn words. They're incredibly solemn words. Um, uh, Most of us, perhaps all of us here, have uh, loved ones who are not believers. Uh, and, and we think about this. We, we, uh, this, isn't, this isn't abstract theology. This is not something that you do uh, abstractly. Uh, this, is, uh, this has consequences. This, this gets to the heart. This affects us personally. Uh, there, is a, there is an election to salvation, but there is, there is also something called uh, reprobation. Now, it's interesting the Confession doesn't actually use that word reprobation. 
Calvin, uh, when he writes about this, he calls it the decretum horribile. Now, he doesn't mean horrible. Uh, the Latin for horribile is the word awesome. Uh, it is something frightening, in other words. It is something, uh, it is something tr- tremendous. It gives, you, it gives you the tremors, uh, was what Calvin meant by, by that statement. Um, it is something we should, we should talk about because the Bible talks about it. Romans 9 talks about it. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. But the Bible does talk about it. It doesn't talk about it at great length. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about it on every page or in every sentence for sure. Um, but when we do talk about it, we need to talk about it and think about it with solemnity and gravity and a touch of the holy tremors. It's a, it's a terrifying concept. It's an awesome, uh, it's an awesome concept. Now, let's look at the statement as the Westminster Confession puts it. And there are two parts to it. There is the verb to pass by, and there is the verb to ordain. And they are separated by a semicolon. Right? There is the verb to pass by, and then there is a verb to ordain. And the divines here, I think, are trying to say something of enormous importance and significance. Now let me give you one interpretation of this. But uh, in giving you this interpretation, for those of you who understood last week's lecture, and that's two of you, uh, this is an infralapsarian interpretation that I'm about to give to you. Um, we are going back into eternity now. We're going back before creation. Right? We're, we're going back into the mind of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going back into the mind of God in eternity. And God elects some, but he passes by others. He passes them by. One, one is um, an active work. The other is a passive work. He, he passes... He, he, he chooses not to do something. Right? It's a passive thing. He passes them by. And then he ordains them to wrath. And then it uses the term justice. Right? right? When he ordains them to wrath, he doesn't do so simply based on an act of sovereignty. He does so because there is already in the mind of God a pre-consideration of their fallenness. So what they are getting is justice. Right? This, isn't, this isn't a bare sovereign elect reprobate. This is, this is elect passing by and there is a consideration, there is a pre-consideration of their fallenness. He has already decreed, if you like, to permit the fall. And having fallen in the logic of the mind of God, what they are now getting, if God does nothing at all, they deserve hell. It's probably the default of how we would respond, most of us, I think, to the charge that election isn't fair. Because our... our default response to that is to say well if it's fairness you want we're all going to hell 
Now, now, now that is, for the two of you who understood last week, that is an infralapsarian way of thinking. And, and I think, personally, I'm putting myself on the line here, I think that's what the Westminster divines are probably saying in the majority. Now, it is possible, I do believe it's possible to interpret this this from a supralipsarian point of view. I'm not going to go there tonight. But, but I, I do think it's possible to do that. But I, I, do, want you to see, I do want you to see the two verbs here. The, the passive verb, to pass by, and then the ordination to damnation is on the basis of justice. It's not on the basis of sovereignty. It, it's, it's not... It's not bare sovereignty. There, 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 in that interpretation, there is not symmetry. Now, sometimes, sometimes in this topic, uh, the, 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 the phrase will come up, equal ultimacy. Is election and reprobation equally ultimate? It's like, it's like a symmetrical diagram. God, well, did you see the little diagram? on page 10. D- don't get alarmed. We're going to look at this diagram in all of its glorious detail. And that's all that we will do one evening. Uh, that's, that's probably four or five weeks down the line. Uh, I'm just teasing you with this, with this diagram. But this is, um, this is good old William Perkins uh, from 1600 or so in, in Cambridge in England. Now, I do want you to know and this, this, is, this is fascinating. This is called an ocular catechism. It's, it, it's, it's a visual thing. It's an ocular catechism. It is widely believed that in Puritan uh, England, in the first half of the 17th century, from, from around 1600 to 1650 or so, it is widely believed that most, the majority of Puritan homes right, in Britain and in New England... Uh, with uh, John Cotton and others in New England, uh, had this catechism in their home. Right? This, this was something that, that parents and children would have studied together. Um, the order uh, of salvation uh, according to the ocular catechism of William Perkins. This was, this was wildly popular in the first half of the 17th century. Im- imagine that. Um, If you want to see a larger copy of it, I have a framed copy in my office. Um, It was actually done by an African-American student of mine who uh, did graphics as a a part-time job and suddenly presented me with this. Uh, He loved it so much. Um, we, will have, uh, we will have a great deal of fun looking at some of this. It's, uh, it's a marvelous uh, uh, catechism. It's a very Christ-centered catechism. The central line is all about Jesus. Uh, at every point, there is a line going to Jesus. But what I want you to look at tonight is simply the, the very top of it. You see the bubble uh, at the very top that says God. Now forget the fact that if you try to diagram the Trinity, you will commit a heresy, and this one does. There's no doubt about that. If you, if you even attempt to draw the Trinity right, you have committed a heresy. But let's pass that by. Uh, but what I want you to see is, going down from God, you've got, you've got the decree, right? you've got his foreknowledge, God putting his love, uh, and his decree. And then there are 
there's the word predestination, and then you see one goes over to the decree of election and the other goes to the decree of reprobation, and it is symmetrical, right? By which I mean you could divide it in half and the two would meet. There is absolute symmetry. Now, William Perkins was a supralipsarian. Right? He was the king of supralipsarianism, and theology in the first half of the 17th century was largely supralipsarian. Um, and and uh, uh, I'm saying, I, I am saying that, that I think the doctrine of reprobation ought to be viewed as non-symmetrical with the doctrine of election. Uh, the way the divines present the doctrine of reprobation is there is a passive act a passing by, and then a consigning to damnation on the basis of justice and not simply on the basis of a divine decree regarded as an act of pure sovereignty. Um, now that, that I think is important. Now come back to page uh, 8. I've given you a lot of scriptures, uh, but at the bottom of page 8... Um, uh, I wanted to say, I'm not sure what I wanted to say. Uh, I want to say one thing here in, in closing, and that is, we do not evangelize or preach the gospel um, on, the, on any basis whatsoever that we know who are elect and who are reprobate. Uh, God bids us, uh, commands us to go into all the world and make disciples. Uh, he commands us to make the gospel known to all. Uh, where, wherever God in his providence opens up a, an opportunity to speak for Christ, we, 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 do, not, uh, we do not engage in, in that on the basis uh, that we uh, have some kind of insight into who is elect and who is not um, elect. Now, let me say something about election and assurance. Um, it, it's very important for us that we don't base our assurance on the knowledge that we are elect. How, how do I know that I'm elect? I can only know that I'm elect so long as I'm trusting in Jesus. The basis of my assurance is Christ. The basis of my assurance is what Christ has promised. That's the basis of my assurance. It's not the certainty that I'm elect. Um, I, I, I can't hack into the hard drive of heaven. I, I, I don't know whether my name is written on the Lamb's Book of Life. I can't see that. But what I am told is, the one who believes in Jesus, his name is written on the Lamb's, in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what I'm told. Um, so, so my assurance, I think, comes from, from believing the gospel. You know, Calvin put it like this. Actually, it's a, it, uh, there's an interesting story about Calvin. Calvin, when he wrote the first edition of the Institutes, he was 27 years old. Uh, when he wrote it, he wasn't even a minister of the gospel. He'd only been converted two, two and a half years. Uh, in 1536, he writes the first edition of the Institutes. And the doctrine of election is placed uh, in the very opening section of the book, actually under the doctrine of God where it belongs. But in 15. 
39, after he had been a minister for three years in Geneva and, and was kicked out of Geneva and he'd gone to Strasbourg, he, he republishes the work, expands the work. He moves the doctrine of election from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of salvation. Because this was his reason. He said election is a family secret. You know, there is no point, he said, in talking about election to those who are not Christians. Right? You'll drive yourself crazy. There is absolutely no way that non-Christians are going to understand or appreciate the doctrine of election. It's only Christians who understand the doctrine of election. You know, you understand it this way. When you... Um, we, we don't have time for that now. <laughs> when, when, you, when you give thanks for your salvation, what do you do? You know, even, even radical Arminians don't say to God, you know, time out, I'm... I'm going to pat myself on the back now because I made a really good decision here. And, and I need to pat myself on the back for having the insight and foresight to make this good decision. You know, I, I've got my free will. I'm going to, Lord, I'm just, going to, I'm just going to say that was a really good decision on my part. I mean, even Arminians, when they pray, they say, Lord, I thank you for my salvation. Because they understand that salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. But unless the Lord had done it, we wouldn't be saved. That's the family secret. You know, once you become a Christian, you understand it wasn't your decision. I can tell you about my decision. I can tell you about the torment I went through for about 48 hours as I was reading John Stott's basic Christianity. I've, I've relived it a thousand times. But I remember when I, when I dropped down on my knees at about 11.30 that night in 1971, in December 28th, 1971, I remember when I dropped down on my knees, my cry was, Lord, save me. And I, and I realized it was all of God. And actually, it was all of God from the very beginning. It was all of God from the very beginning. It's a family secret. There are, there are such extraordinary uh, benefits to be had from the doctrine of election. The thought that um, this is not a Johnny-come-lately thing with God. God. God has been thinking this and determining this and purposing this even before creation. Listen to a prayer um, of Calvin's. Grant, Almighty God, that having cast away and renounced all confidence in our own virtue, we may be led to Christ only as the fountain of thy election, in whom also is set before us the certainty of our salvation through thy gospel until we shall at length be gathered into that eternal glory which he has procured for us by his own blood. The election of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you as we, as we ponder and consider this, uh, this immense truth. We are, we are on the borders here. There are infinities and immensities here. There is a labyrinth here. We, we cannot begin to comprehend uh, your thought here. Forgive us when we, when we impugn anything that you do with, with an accusation of unfairness, as though you did not have the right to govern in the way that you do. 
we, we thank you that we have come to know in Christ, in the gospel, through believing in him, through trusting in him, through the witness of the Spirit with our spirits, that we are the children of God, that we have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and chosen in order that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ. So in that spirit, help us to make our calling and election sure. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.